Welcome to the inaugural episode of Authorized, a podcast where we eagerly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Narrative writing is an intrinsic ingredient in cinema, usually in the form of a script. A script, while crucial, is a temporary document used as a stepping stone towards creating a motion picture. Though the zygote of the idea was conceived with paper and ink, these tactile factors fall away to birth an audio-visual offspring, the film. Novelizations ask, what if I wrote a speculative fiction biography about that offspring? Would you pay me to read it instead of hanging out with the actual dude? I could even change the way he acts if you like. I could change anything about him. I could make him your best pal. Novelizations are, by their nature, immortalized secondary documents. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. My name is Johnny Pomato. My name is Jack McComb. And I'm producer Andrew. Marco. Andrew and Andrew, definitely not going to be confusing. Not <laughs> at all. Did we just have a meeting about this? <laughs> we had a meeting where we said, we need to figure out how to address this. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be covering the 1984 film Gremlins. Uh, Gremlins is a comedy horror film directed by Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus, starring Zach Galligan, Phoebe Cates, Hoyt Axton, and many more, quite the ensemble piece, uh, produced and distributed by Warner Brothers, released on June 8th, 1984. The novelization Gremlins was developed in tandem with the film and released simultaneously, written by George Geip and put out by Avon Fiction. So, who is George Geip? Uh, I'll say to begin that I found this information from a variety of sources, but most of it came from a 2020 article on Gype in the Baltimore Sun that was published after Carl Reiner's death. Uh, Gype and Reiner were uh, frequent collaborators. Huh. George Gype was born in Baltimore, Maryland on February 3rd, 1933. After graduating from college, he won a Fulbright scholarship and studied English lit and drama at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. He returned to the States to work as a cameraman for a local Baltimore news station, simultaneously freelancing as a humor writer. Guype had a wary relationship with new technology. He steadfastly refused to learn to use a computer. Consequently, his two-finger typing method, as it was described, I call that pecking, necessitated that he start writing by 5 a.m. every day in order to get his daily work done. Uh, so Guype's writing uh, was in turn, sort of very insightful and also a bit problematic to my eye. On the insightful side, uh, in 1967, he uh, wrote a nonfiction work called Nearer to the Dust, Copyright and the Machine, which was this very uh, prescient piece where he looked at emergent computer technology, which once again he was very afraid of, and said... Uh, oh, I think this is going to result in all of these different copyright issues and basically predicted uh, the issue of like intellectual property and, and such things like that. Um, he also was, and I want to pull this up to make sure I get it right. He, he also, was Metallica before Metallica. <laughs> he was Metallica before Metallica. Uh, on the more problematic side, uh, Guype also wrote a 1981 piece on how incompetence tends to help people excel. Uh, he said in it, the world needs losers, for without losers there could be no winners. 
He expounded in other pieces on this same issue, uh, opining that the Leaning Tower of Pisa has survived only because uh, it has structural flaws, and that if it were a more excellent uh, building, it would have been demolished years ago. (laughs) He also suggested that uh, Joan of Arc is only famous because she was not essentially on the ball enough to get a lawyer who would represent her adequately, and uh, that that incompetence in choosing a lawyer is the entire reason she achieved saintdom. Well, is it perhaps that uh, this motley crew of hosts is uh, proving his theory correct, right? (laughs) We've all failed upwards to this, right? (laughs) Oh, 100%. And this is the pinnacle of achievement. Uh, that's like uh, that's like President Garfield. You know, we all, the only thing we know about him is that he got shot and hated Mondays. <laughs> and, do not and do not lasagna. get me started on Garfield. The things that they did trying to save him, like they they operated on the wrong side of his body and then realized the bullet actually went into his other side. Anyway, um, <laughs> George Guype. Guype moved to Hollywood in 1980 to write uh, the movie Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin and Carl Reiner. It was during this time that he made the connections that led him to novelizing various films, including Gremlins, Jonathan Demme's Melvin and Howard, and Back to the Future. Uh, The Baltimore Sun article that I got most of this information from is very adamant that Guype never, quote-unquote, went Hollywood, citing as evidence that he never sold his Maryland home. They do, however, acknowledge that he died in his second home in Glendale, California in 1986. Uh, He was allergic to bee stings, and while hosting some guests, he unfortunately died uh, from a bee sting. He was 53 years old. Uh, I think it's okay to admit that he did sort of go Hollywood, and that was probably his primary home, and that we shouldn't be shaming him for doing that. Uh, It's also notable that he died when his novelization career was really on fire. I mean, this was just one year after Back to the Future came out, and this B probably stole many future George Guype novelizations from us. Uh, Survived so, by the love of his life, Anna Chlumsky. <laughs> no, oh, no, no, that's the other guy who was stung by the bees. Okay, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even understand this point of reference. No, that, that, that's a My Girl <laughs> reference. <laughs> so guys what do we think general thoughts on gremlins uh the novelization well i'll tell you what i love about this novelization is that this is clearly written from a very early draft of a script because it includes a lot of things that did not make it to the movie uh, a lot of it is very true but the big 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 one is that the it explains that the gremlins are all aliens and specifically Aliens that were cre- created by this overlord who who had these designs on achieving some sort of world peace through these things, but he really screwed it up because only about one in 5,000 Mogwai uh, were good and pure of heart, and the rest are mischief makers. Uh, so we get that great introduction, and then, you know, the other wonderful thing that we get out of this is a real Mogwai slash Gremlin point of view where we are hearing them talk to each other, which, of course, is never in the film. You know, they, they squeak and they, they grunt. But uh, we, we are hearing whole dialogues playing out between the two of them and hearing a lot of point of view of, you know, uh, ooh, and now I'm going to go climb in that Christmas tree and attack uh, Billy's mother. Uh, not to that extent, but, you know, something along <laughs> those lines. So, like, there's a lot of fun Easter eggs that just contextualize what is going on in the film. 
A hundred percent. I texted you guys and I, I was just laughing out loud at the first page. And I, I tried to count this before the before we started the record. Uh, the name of the alien scientist who created the Mogwai, uh, Mog Termin, it's something like the 200th word in the book. It's just like <laughs> yeah. you open up this book and it's like, OK, so there was this alien scientist and he made... <laughs> These things that also you don't know what they are because you just started this book. <laughs> yeah, right, um, right out of the gate, it, it's bizarre, and and only raises more questions than it answers. Um, it, uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's a real fun element because I guess part of the fun of the movie is that it is totally mysterious. You have to make up the mythology as you go along, and yeah, it sort of makes sense that these things, well, if they weren't created for this purpose, they certainly serve a purpose to um, uh, maybe multiply at such a rate that they uh, cause a uh, mass extinction of other species, sort of a uh, cane toads of Australia, if you will. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, th this doesn't provide all the details that you might want from a uh, gremlin's backstory, but it gives you enough to really work with and think about it within the context of the film and, and <laughs> wonder how that would apply to the, uh, the, the world at large. I did not read very much of this book. I only read the first two chapters, uh, but I could not help but associate this origin story with like being the alien covenant of the gremlins. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, now I'm, you already have me regretting. Uh, let's get this out of the way. I, I didn't read the same George guy novelization as you guys. Uh, I wrote the uh, novelization for young readers, which is oh, uh, sh shorter, more juvenile, uh, not a lot of uh, readers, if you will. yeah, not a lot of independent clauses in the sentences. But it's still uh, Guype, which I find fascinating that they didn't hire a uh, a second writer who specializes in in writing for for young readers. Guype did both, uh, and just right off the bat, I can tell that I missed a lot of details. Uh, in my much, much abridged version. I didn't, did, did they, so here, here's the very first, I mean, we cut right to it. Mogterman is the, is not the 200th word. It's like the eighth word. Uh, <laughs> so the, the, the first sentence of the book is, many hundreds of years ago on the planet ends, a great inventor named Mogterman created a new species of animal and just got right into it. But it didn't mention that one out of 10,000 or whatever was good and everybody else was bad. So mm -hmm. that, that kind of defines gizmo and, and uh, that's not in here at all. Yeah, there is a lot of inner gizmo monologue in this book where he he knows exactly what's coming. He he knows that this is a cycle and sooner or later someone is going to screw up and get him wet and then he knows what is going to follow. Uh, so and, and it's really you get a sense that if only Gizmo could talk to Billy and warn him, but he can't. He is mute. He he doesn't have that ability until the the end. Spoiler, uh, you know, he, he does utter a goodbye, Billy, at the end. And it's, it's, I guess, supposed to be a very cathartic moment because, oh, he has finally achieved the ability to speak. Yeah. And if only he had done this, you know, in chapter one, we wouldn't have had this problem <laughs> at all. Um, I've got some logistical questions that I'll probably be peppering throughout uh, just because oh, I'm yeah. not super familiar with the movie. I've seen it. Maybe three, four times, uh, not recently. I'm much more familiar with the sequel. Um, yeah. But also, I didn't realize the movie came out three days before I was born. Uh, you said in the beginning it was June 8th, 84. That was, June was 8th, 84, yeah. Yeah. This happened when your mother got wet? Yeah, I knew I was, I knew I was born the, the opening weekend of Ghostbusters, but not Gremlins. <laughs> um, 
But anyway, I've got, I'll probably have some logistical questions. Uh, but one I didn't realize is that uh, it seems like Gizmo would also turn into a gremlin if he ate after midnight. And Absolutely. he just never had... In both movies, he just gets wet. This is a great point. So I am very confused. I was going to say, I, I read the real book and I have logistical questions, so don't don't be ashamed. <laughs> hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, this is also the real book. Let's not age that is both real. That is George Guype's yeah. opus. Um, <laughs> it's a, anyway, so uh, yes, I'm very confused about that too. So basically, when you get a gremlin, uh, or when you feed a gremlin after midnight, a it mogwai. becomes this, sorry, yes, you're totally right. When you feed a mogwai after midnight, it becomes a quote-unquote gremlin, which is uh, sort of like a more monstrous version of the mogwai. But there's also this other factor of most mogwai being, like, unpure of spirit, and then there's, like, one in every 10,000 is pure of spirit, and Gizmo is one of those. Um, So would Gizmo be a good gremlin if he ate after midnight? I think they want us to think that, yes. <laughs> but, Johnny, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Like, the opening uh, explanation of... of I, 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 I'm already forgetting his name. Mort German. Mog Turman, right? Mog Turman. The opening explanation of him, it really just raises way more questions. Like, there's the, the part... Here, let me just, like, read a little bit of it. Because this is, this is so confusing. Okay, so uh, Mog Terman, the inventor of the Mogwai species, had seen to that. Centuries ago, on another planet, Mog Terman had set out to produce a creature that was adaptable to any climate and condition, one that could easily reproduce itself, was gentle and highly intelligent. And then it goes on to say that once he had done it, they discovered some flaws, but they were like, it's not a big deal, and they sent them off to all these different planets, being like, we have to send them to other planets because their peace-loving spirit will help every place they go. And it's like, were the defects that they were aware of, the eating after midnight and the water thing? Because that's so irresponsible. Like, Mog Terman needs to have his, like, license revoked. Yeah, I think the implication is that Mog Terman really screwed up. Uh, that his <laughs> intentions were pure, but he didn't test it enough, and he sent them out into the world, only realizing later that uh, these were uh, horrible, destructive beings. And uh, which that's an interesting angle. I think a more interesting approach would have been that Mog Terman is this evil galactical mastermind (laughs) who is sending these things out to destroy worlds. I I, I don't know. I think that is a, uh, a much more fun premise. Uh, Isn't it though? Yeah. A hundred percent. Also, wait, so I didn't realize this was also cut out in the, in the, in my real book. Uh, that uh, they were they were high evolved they were built to be highly adaptable, yet they can't be in light, which yeah you know, that, that, I feel like that's a pretty key characteristic on many worlds that there is uh, some form of light. Yeah, that is I think water. also explained as a uh, <laughs> as a problem or or as an accident that uh, well, they they yeah. discovered after the fact that oh they're they're uh, adverse to light. And I didn't realize the light thing. I kind of forgot about that from the movie. Uh, later in the movie, um, they, I remember them all going to the movie theater and watching Snow White. 
I didn't realize the book explains they went to the movie specifically because there was no windows and they needed somewhere exactly. to go during the day. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, in the second stuff like one, that isn't verbalized in the movie, right? But in the second one, they're in uh, artificial light, so artificial light is okay. So it's it's, it's sunlight that's the problem. Uh, in the book and the movie, the original movie, uh, yeah, they, they're constantly dimming lights in the house just to sort of protect them. That does seem to get thrown out with the sequel where they're like on talk show sets and stuff like that and (laughs) and under the bright lights. You know, I, I, I did never really put that together that, uh, it, I I guess it is just changed to sunlight in the sequel, which, uh, the sequel like largely abandons the premise, doesn't it? It's, it's like just... It's such a zanier movie. It, like, breaks the fourth wall, doesn't it? I haven't seen it in yeah. a while. Yeah, and there is a gremlin. I want to bring up another point. There is a gremlin in Gremlins 2 that breaks out and attacks uh, the Futtermans in daylight, and the daylight doesn't seem to be uh, affecting that gremlin. Ironically, that gremlin is a bat, uh, which you would think out of all the gremlins that would uh, have trouble with sunlight, it would be the vampire gremlin, but I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> but... But I want to bring up Futterman because he dies in the book, at least yes. in my version. Does he I was die just in about to ask you that. He, he dies. Yeah. yeah, he's dead. Does he die in the movie? Uh, he, I believe they filmed his death, but uh, because um, the actor, uh, uh, Corman legend, uh, Bucket of Blood, uh, Dick Miller, of course. Thank you. Uh, because uh, Joe Dante was such a Dick Miller uh, devotee, he omitted that scene from the final cut, thus leaving him alive and well to come into the sequel. Good, good, good. Now, something else interesting that ties to the sequel is that uh, there is some fun tongue-in-cheek dialogue in that film, which is way broader, more of a Looney Tunes cartoon, really, like, winking constantly. And there's a you know famous scene in the movie where they start poking holes in all of the logic with the rules. And... It seems, un- unless this was in the original script for uh, part one, it this might have been an invention of George Gipes. On uh, page two th- uh, 204, uh, there is this whole stretch where the policemen, when Billy is warning them, start picking apart the theory, saying like, well, suppose he eats at 10 o'clock and something gets stuck beneath his teeth and then uh, I, something that I comes loose after midnight. <laughs> yeah. So it's like... and. This dialogue that plays out for a few pages is word for word almost what happens in Gremlins 2. I wonder if that's the origin of it, where they, uh, you know, maybe George Geip was picking up on the stuff that didn't quite make sense in the original script, and they really took it and ran with it after the fact. I always thought that that was just in reaction to <laughs> cynical moviegoers who walked out of the, you know, the cinema, you know, picking it apart. So this leads me to a point about Geip which is I also had that exact passage bookmarked where where the cops are going like, oh, like, well, you know, what happens, like you said, what happens if he eats before midnight, but something in his teeth, he swallows it after midnight, and Billy's just being like, I don't know. Like, I, like I just got a, a mogwai. Like, I really don't know. And I think, a, well, like, not, I, I shouldn't say this in such a leading way. What do you guys think of Gype's writing style? <laughs> Well, I do think that he uses a lot of uh, strange approaches to, uh, at first, for, for you know, the first hundred pages or so, it's actually quite fun to see how much uh, Mogwai and eventually Gremlin point of view there is, and you are getting their inner monologues. You are actually getting Stripe's inner thoughts 
as he is hatching out of his pupa state, uh, mm-hmm. where like, ooh, I can't move my legs. Ooh, I'm all slimy. Why? Ooh, I, my arm feels stronger. And you're, you're getting all of this. And then yet, when the mayhem really starts taking place, and you could really get inside their heads and say, you know, you know depict the gremlins themselves uh, plotting their destruction, we... Almost all of that plays out through uh, news reports, and th- mm-hmm. that you know it, everything changes to italicized text, and it's uh, it's all like radio and uh, television reports, and uh, and and police uh, scanners, and uh, yeah, it's very strange that all of that gets uh, descriptive later on, as opposed to you know really uh, taking the action and running with it. Yeah, yeah. My takeaway, like just reading. Uh, the way Guype was describing everything was like, I think that the police station is a good microcosm of it. He seems to be writing a book for people who are going to be like, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? Because even when, towards the end of the book, they're burning down the theater, there's Mm -hmm. a back and forth where (laughs) Billy's like, okay, I'm going to go to the basement and burn down the theater. And Kate's like, I'll come with you. And he's like, why would we need two people? And she's like, well, you'll have to get the door of the furnace open. And he's like, I can do that myself. And she's like, but who's going to hold the flashlight? And he's like, I guess you have a point. And there's so (laughs) many interactions like that where it's like Gype is writing to the most cynical, determined to not have fun reader. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's justifying... Uh, plot holes and things that aren't fully fleshed out in the script itself. Like, yeah, why does why does there need to be you know Phoebe Cates with Zach Allegan going in the theater? <laughs> well, so he has someone to talk to, I guess. Uh, yeah. th- that's the the short answer. But when you're justifying it on the page, you do you. I mean, you don't have to come up with a reason. But I do think that he has fun with it. Like, it, it, there is a cynicism to it, uh, a, a playful one where he is. Yeah. Uh, coming up with these excuses. And uh, I, I think that that is prevalent throughout the whole book. I think that um, there, he, he likes expanding their origin story. You know, the, the alien stuff is, is just the beginning. I, I do think that, it, I, I might be wrong, but I don't think that in the original film, anyone ever refers to them as a gremlin. Uh, that is something that, you know, it the gremlin is a concept uh, back from World War II, sort of a fun little mythic thing. Um, both Roald Dahl and Walt Disney were trying to make a gremlin story. Uh, there were Warner Brothers cartoons about them, which they were these little uh, monsters, not even as monstrous as they appear here, but these little creatures that would get in electrical stuff and they'd be like explain the uh, they would be explained away as why uh, airplanes would stall and such. Uh, here they are introduced as gremlins almost immediately by Mr. Futterman uh, because he was in the war and so he talks about gremlins. And so when these hatch, they're not just instantly identified as gremlins by the humans, but the gremlins themselves know that they're gremlins. There's even a line where Stripe says, I am a gremlin now. The the, the term <laughs> came to him as if he knew. He, he just instinctually knew. Uh, and that's a fun thing, which, I, which also leads to... But it, and it also really plays into the idea of the gremlins and, and you know, general chaos and destruction and particularly uh, mechanical things uh, on, let's see, one of my favorite passages, uh, 157, uh, where 
it says the last time this happened was 1983 on the Columbia space ship. Um, and, uh, at first, you know, so it's, there's a whole sequence about how a gremlin gets on board the Columbia and it almost causes, you know, a disaster. And when I first started reading it, I thought, wait, Columbia, Columbia, wait, wait, oh no, no, it was the challenger. But for a second, I thought they were implying that the gremlins, uh, caused the challenger to explode. Uh, so Columbia uh, did explode. The Columbia did as well. In 2003, yeah. Oh, it did. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. Okay, so that's why so I was making they that just They were, they were playing the long game, the Gremlins. <laughs> yeah, they really were. I had the same thought about the Challenger. You, you do. You just go, like, how, how, how dark is Gype going? <laughs> gosh. Yeah. So before we get too far ahead, because we're talking all about the nitpickers who uh, were probably reading this book and had all these thoughts on Gremlins, Two things are Gremlins superfans would probably Gremsplain to us uh, that we missed. <laughs> Futterman is actually confirmed alive in the first movie uh, on the, I believe it's a news or radio broadcast at the end after all the destructions happened. Uh, oh, and okay. I believe in the second one, Jack, you were referring to that bat gremlin who escapes into the city. The reason he's able to do that is because... Uh, the brainy gremlin gives him a sun serum. Oh, you're right. You're right. Uh, I do yeah. remember that. Which I, I can't believe that sentence so it's came just out of my blade? mouth. It's blade. <laughs> it's just blade. <laughs> it was the Daywalker <laughs> gremlin. Yeah. Uh, and now I'll re- retreat back to my gremlin cave. <laughs> now, Johnny, to the idea that Gype is like taking the opportunity. And look, I love Gype. I came to really, I came to really feel affection for him reading about his tragically ended life. But um, the you're talking about how he is sort of like providing extra context and, and patching up uh, issues and explaining things. I think he opens a couple of new holes in the story as well. So specifically at the end of, this is a a passage I had bookmarked, which is at the end of uh, the book, when he is, when they're all in the uh, department store and Stripe is trying to get to a fountain in the movie, that's like a fountain that appears to be in some sort of garden installation. Like he goes to yeah. like the greenhouse part of the department store and it's like, OK, that makes sense. That would, They'd have that in a, in a department store. In the book, uh, Kate is messing around with the lights, which she does do in the movie. And she's like trying to figure out which one turns on all the lights. And she keeps turning on. Uh, pre-recorded messages about like sales and stuff for the hardware store and the reason that a fountain factors in is because she hits a button that reveals a fountain in the wall and this is the passage this is what comes over the intercom it says ladies and gentlemen we now direct your attention to the northernmost end of the store where the carol b hebel memorial fountain is being turned on for the day the this magnificent piece of freeform sculpture the work of artist Donald Boudet was constructed so that the interplay of falling water and lights would provide maximum dramatic effect. Although relatively new, the fountain is already known throughout the state as an outstanding example of art and business working together to increase your shopping pleasure. So it's a, (laughs) it's a fountain meant to visually aid in your shopping. (laughs) 
in the book. And it is a pre-recorded <laughs> message that Montgomery Ward plays every day just to inform its shoppers that this is happening. Uh, you know, you're, you're walking around this department store. It's like, what? What? A fountain somewhere? Who, who cares? Uh, yeah, it, it, it only exists so that uh, Stripe the Gremlin can hear this recording and say, what's that? Fountain? Water? Oh, now this gives me an idea. Now, I, I will also add uh, to this, Andrew, that like the entire climax in the Montgomery Ward is so much more elaborate than what's in the movie. And I don't know if this is all Guype's invention or if this if, if it was supposed to be more elaborate in the original script and Joe Dante ran out of money. I, I don't know. But it reading about this epic battle uh, between uh, Billy and Stripe in the Montgomery Ward made me wish, oh, God, I, I wish that, you know, the movie ended as spectacularly. Because it's, it's all kind of uh, quick once they... Uh, defeat the, you know, they blow up the movie theater and then it's just like, okay, we can't let Stripe to get to a fountain. Oh, he has, and we gotta kill him. Right. Yeah. I just want to add, uh, the, the fountain is so important that it's also in the children's book as well. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not quite as big a passage, but uh, a recorded voice began to speak. Ladies and gentlemen, it said, we now direct your attention to the northernmost end of the store, where our beautiful fountain is being turned on for the day. This fountain is so beautiful, it is already known throughout the state. We hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, all you need is for one line, like, and then Stripe saw a fountain. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's very strange that they set it up so much who is, to really who hammer home the to the audience. After? Who's, who, who's that woman that it was named? The memorial? George Guype's niece. I can only imagine. It was. I think it was a man. It was like Charles Hebel or something. Charles Hebel. Um, but can you imagine seriously having that conversation, being like, so, have you seen the fountain at the department store? <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> it made me want to visualize it. I, I don't remember the fountain in the movie being all that special. I think it lights no, up. No, it's maybe. not. J yeah, j just for the sake of, uh, of just you a know, giving a little yeah. atmosphere. But it, I'd it's like to just think. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to think a very young Darren Aronofsky read this uh, novelization as a kid <laughs> and was inspired to make his uh, his masterpiece with Hugh Jackman. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so here's some things that I was looking for, like when reading this book, something I hope to find and mostly was satisfied because I think that there are some things about the film, some loose ends that just get dropped and mostly uh, characters, uh, two of them being uh, Corey Feldman's Pete, mm -hmm. this, this, you know, intrepid little boy who's kind of Billy's sidekick for a while. And then just completely disappears. Uh, you, you see, I think the last time you see him in the movie, uh, there's like gremlins, like you know, climbing his house and trying to get in, and he's he's pushing them out or something. But and you're, he's presumed okay at the end. But then the other one is the uh, fellow bank employee uh, Gerald, played by Judge Reinhold in the movie. Yes. And Judge <laughs> Reinhold, also a uh, you know, in competition for Phoebe Kate's affection, Judge Reinhold only exists in that movie to get killed by gremlins, and never does. He just <laughs> vanishes. You never see him after the gremlins are created. And indeed, in the book, you do. You do see him again. He is not killed and tormented by them necessarily. It does seem, uh, this is a very odd sequence, Andrew, maybe you can shed your opinions on it. He does seem to go quite mad 
by the gremlins. They get to the bank. He is there. The gremlins have clearly been to the bank, but Billy and Kate get there, and Gerald is now saying, this bank is only for little people. This is a little people <laughs> bank. He is really playing in to, I will, you know, he's, he's being Kent Brockman with the, with the ants. Like, I welcome our new gremlin overlords, and I would love to help them open a checking account. It's, it's very strange, and I was really trying to imagine Judge Reinhold doing it. I know I have watched all the Gremlins deleted scenes in the past on the DVD. I can't remember if this is there, if they actually filmed it, or if it was just in the script, or if uh, George created this. So I, I also don't know if George created it, but I will say that the book uh, does have a couple instances where I go, oh, the language in this book has aged, unfortunately, because there's a scene where Judge Reinhold is going on, on and on about little people, and then there's another one, or several, honestly, where the gremlins are just calling each other minorities. They're saying, like, yeah. minority. You're a minority all the time. Which, like, neither is particularly offensive, but both mean a different thing than they did when the book was published. Um, yeah, I think that he's, you know, George was, you know, he had his uh, thesaurus, he had his synonyms and such, and he, he was just running out of ways to describe I have it. a whole passage that I hope to get to about how George loved his thesaurus. There is a <laughs> single paragraph in this book that is that is written by a madman. But, yes, so to, uh, to the Judge Reinhold point, um, yes, he must have gone insane in that scene. So for people who have not read the book... Yeah, as as Johnny was saying, that uh, Billy gets to the bank, and once the Gremlins have taken over the town, and Judge Reinhold is just like, well, I mean, Judge Reinhold isn't in the book, but you get me. Um, he's just like, you know, I this is a bank for Gremlins now. Like, I live in this bank. I can't wait for them to come back with their Gremlin money. Um, yeah, it was a very weird way to tie up his story. Because even though it provides some closure, it also, as you said, skips what you expect to get from him in the movie and book, which is his version of the Mrs. Deagle scene. Exactly. Yeah. You, ex you, you we. Yo, go ahead. You, yeah. Well, the book and the movie, you don't need human villains when you have a oh. a a <laughs> cast of little monsters out to kill you. But I guess the. Uh, inclusion of mrs deagle and uh and uh, gerald judge reinhold is well you need some worse people for the gremlins to torment that you don't feel bad that mm -hmm. they are perishing you feel bad that mr futterman dies and that's why they undid that obviously um and yeah you expect uh judge reinhold to uh be you know to succumb to some gremlin antics uh also in the book yeah speaking of mrs deagle she is really expanded as the town villain. Yes. Like it in the in the movie, she is the grouchy old lady. Yes, she owns most of the town. Um, and you know, she's the she's the money grubber, but she that that's where it ends. And then, you know, she's the old lady who opens the door, there's carolers, there are little gremlin carolers, and they kill her. Uh, which also happens off screen or off page in the book. But in the book, also, everything leading up to that is just villainizing her more and more in that she is getting ready to sell every building she owns to some big conglomerate corporation, maybe owned by Donald Clamp of Gremlins <laughs> 2, the new batch. Who knows? But, um, uh, she, yeah, she is. Uh, the, there's a whole thing with Kate signing a petition to make sure she can't sell the bar. There's so much stuff about Mrs. Deagle that just goes on and on and on to the point that it's page, I believe, 66 before 
Billy even gets Gizmo. We are so deep into the story <laughs> before he unwraps the present because we have been learning a lot about Mrs. Deagle. Now, I have my own thoughts on the Deagle uh, arc, but Jack, how much of her story made it into that junior novelization? Um, a decent amount. I just want to jump back, though, back to uh, the Judge Reinhold thing before mm-hmm. we move on. Um, because my take on it was basically he just had shell shock. He had PTSD. Whatever whatever they did really just, just traumatized him. And I could totally see Judge Reinhold playing that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, just shell-shocked comedic for a comedic effect. But it's also the same kind of ending that the, uh, the analog character gets in Gremlins 2, the one that's played by the doctor from Star Trek Voyager, uh, Robert mm-hmm. Picardo. He also... You, he's he's the big asshole. You think he's going to get killed. And uh, instead, uh, the gremlins just kind of uh, traumatize him, tie him up, and then marry them, marry him off to one of their own. Uh, but it's 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 kind of the it's kind of the exact same uh, beats for the for the same type of character. Yeah, he uh, succumbs to her, her, her uh, gremlin wiles at the end of Gremlins 2. <laughs> he uh, he does a little shrug to camera. It's like, oh, what the heck? I don't mind. Uh, <laughs> getting laid with the only feminine gremlin. <laughs> it, it's it's a, a very bizarre ending that I think we could, uh, you know, get deeper into when we do our Gremlins 2 episode. <laughs> Sam, am I remembering this wrong? Or, or is Christopher Lee the only person who dies in Gremlins 2? It's not a very... I believe he is. It's not a high body count that time. Yeah, because that movie is way more of a comedy than, you know... You know th- th- this has genuine dark moments. Yeah, they kill the science teacher who hasn't done really anything other than make a few mistakes, and then in the movie he's black, so, you know. Um, but, yeah, here, they, yeah, they, they're a much more frightening presence. And then in Gremlins 2, they're all just, you know, Wiley e. Coyote and Bugs Bunny. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Lee has it coming, though. I was saying to, uh, to Johnny earlier, I was just... Asking him something about Gype uh, that apparently I'm sorry, you guys are having side conversations about <laughs> Gype without us. So <laughs> Johnny had dropped a, a piece of information about Gremlins, and I, I hungrily texted him and went, oh, "Where did you get that? I need that information." <laughs> um, so All right. anyway, uh, Gype of course was dead by the time Gremlins Two came out because of the whole B thing. But um, apparently, uh, and I would love to at some point, you know, get to the point where we do. The, the new batch novelization, apparently the the person who took over for the second novelization puts all the, like, Mog Terman stuff in, and it's just, like, totally, oh. totally uh, in step with Gype's, uh, you know, it, it's sort of internal chronology. Um, I wonder yeah. if it'll play Why into the... Why not uh, expand on even more? I, maybe it'll play into the animated series that's coming out. What? That's true. I keep forgetting about that. Yeah, HBO is coming out with a uh, a, a Gremlins mythology um, series, That's which uh, hey, I, I'm on board for. So I have a question uh, for both the children's novelization, sorry, the the easy reading <laughs> and the uh, hard reading, I guess, novelizations. Uh, the Phoebe Cates Santa Claus speech is that there? Is it intact? I mean, it, intact in the in the. In the big boy one, I'll tell you that. <laughs> is it expanded upon? Uh, no, I would say it is almost word for word what she says in the movie, proving that that was in, you know, from draft one. However, there is, I think, something very unique about it. In the book, it comes quite early on. Like before, uh, I, I want to say even before the Mogwai reproduce, uh, yeah. before the first one gets wet, it comes on more as a uh, 
development of her character. And I think, you know, and it's rather sincere and sad, and it's basically her saying why she doesn't like Christmas. Now, the reason it became such a monumental laugh sequence in the movie is because it comes so late. The gremlins are already wreaking havoc, and she stops the movie to tell this story. That's why it's so funny, that she is, like, using this opportunity where they really don't have time to talk about anything to suddenly talk about the time her dad died in the chimney. Uh, and then it's parodied, you know, brilliantly in uh, part two when she talks about the time she, you know, uh, Lincoln's birthday was ruined for her forever. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know... When it plays within the context of the book, uh, coming rather early, it only kind of makes her character more richer and understandable and relatable. Uh, mm -hmm. In the movie, it's just done purely for comedic effect. And maybe that wasn't the intention, but yeah, someone must have thought this could be funny if we do it this way. The scene is intact, more or less, in the movie because Billy walks her home from the bar and she talks about people opening their wrists instead of opening presents. Was it in that sequence? I believe so i think it's in its first reference because they talk about how her house has no christmas lights is that right i think that's how it plays mm. out in the book so in the in the johnny i think you're correct about the book in the movie she she like sort of obliquely references not liking christmas early on and doesn't reveal why and then you're correct it comes out super late in the film but when she references not liking christmas early on billy's like why don't you like Christmas? And she goes, I don't understand why people are so excited about all these holidays. Christmas, Thanksgiving, Washington's birthday. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe uh, that little nod led to the bit in Gremlins 2. I did love another time. You know, she has established this early on. And then this is, I think, shortly after Billy rescues her from the bar run, overrun by Gremlins. And she says, this is why I hate Christmas. And Billy mutters under his breath, it's not the holiday's fault. As if he's defending Christmas. That, you know, hey, come on. Enough with this war on Christmas, so, Kate. <laughs> Billy was the original Kirk Cameron, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. He could have unwrapped a Mogwai for any holiday. It could have been for his birthday in uh, July. Yeah, it just happened to be at Christmas. Um, I don't want to get too far away from Mrs. Deagle before I forget this. Uh... In the movie, it's like very, the Miss, Mrs. Deagle arc is very two note, right? It's like, uh, okay, she is terrible to Billy. Then the gremlins throw her out a window via her like electrical chair. And it's like, yeah. okay, comeuppance. That's the whole arc. If you were to just read the novelization, her arc is insane because she is built up like she is like there's going to be like a whole plot about like save the neighborhood where, you know, she owns pretty much everybody's house and she's planning on selling them all to this chemical company. And then there's, as Johnny said, so much time devoted to it. And then she just gets fatally thrown out the window by gremlins. <laughs> and if yeah. you were to just read the book, it would be, I think the most unexpected, you know, end to her story possible. The gremlins saved the town. It sounds like. Yeah. I guess, but I kept wondering. It's like, well, her estate is going somewhere. This could all still go to the chemical company through other means. Uh, but she yeah, it, it is weird how much time she gets. There's like three separate sequences when she comes to the bank and antagonizes Billy. Mm -hmm. uh, again, before a single mogwai eats after midnight. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's protracted. 
or evil. She uh, she only comes <laughs> into the bank once in the to, to answer your question before she's uh, the the whole <laughs> plot of save save the neighborhood and the petition. That's all in there. Uh, just I guess less. She only she only comes to the bank once. Uh, it opens with uh, Billy finding and rescuing her cat. I don't know if that's in your book. And yes, yes yeah. that's in this as well. And, and um, it's like it's like he does a very nice gesture for her, and even that doesn't help. Mm-mm. Yeah, it just shows how what a crabby old bitch she is. Yeah, and but but the the Santa story is not in the book, by the way, at all. Oh, at all. This is yeah. like a G-rated Gremlins. I completely forgot about the Santa story until uh, until Andrew brought it up. Yeah, you can't traumatize your kids with that, you know. <laughs> on on page uh, you know seventeen of eighty, you, you can't just throw in a, a oh, and my dad died when I was a child by breaking his neck in our chimney. Oh oh oh, <laughs> especially because the passage ends with her saying, "And that's how I learned that Santa Claus wasn't real." Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, you, you can't. You can't have that in an <laughs> easy. Have that's probably book. why it was pulled. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know what yeah, guy was trying to pull there. <laughs> I think my other big question for those who read the book is: are is the infamous moment that got the PG thirteen rating created the Gremlin in the microwave still intact in the novel? Yeah, that the the uh, gremlins attacking the mother is more or less uh, beat for beat. Uh, or wait, in the, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, gremlin in the microwave. I'm not sure if that happens. It does happen in the juicer. Uh, the the, mm. the which is straight out of the book as well. So I uh, think maybe that's the only the one microwave the does m- happen. Yeah, it happens. It happens mm-hmm. in the kids' book as well. Oh, good. They could keep that. <laughs> Now, this is actually interesting uh, because this is, you know, going back to the, the plot holes of how the rules work. One thing that is never really addressed in either movie, uh, to the best of my recollection, is, okay, but, you know, if, if a gremlin gets wet, they reproduce. They're running around in snow the whole time. D- doesn't that count as getting wet? Uh, they can also get, like, juice or soda thrown on them. You know, when the, 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 the gremlin goes through the juicer, surely it's getting juice on it. That uh, doesn't count. So they <laughs> actually do clarify in the book, no, it has to be water. Pure water, H2O, and it can't even be in a frozen state. So they can run in the snow. I mean, yeah, George Guy really was ahead of the game in, you know, calling <laughs> the attention game, to... The game no okay, one was yes, we know, Yeah, we know they're running through snow this whole time and they're not constantly popping out babies uh just because they're you know it's a little slushy out there yeah no if george guype was a zoomer he would 100 percent have like a youtube channel like here's why the snow doesn't make more gremlins smash okay. that subscribe button i have another question so uh the, who's the doctor scientist who created these gremlins mogwise mogterman mogterman so he's on some other planet in some other galaxy and yet the properties that hurt these gremlins, H2O and the sun, the Earth's sun, would not be consistent on this other planet. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think uh, the only answer to that is that, you know, galaxy far, far away type the, the, thing. The Fermi like, you know. paradox. There's plenty of planets with H2O and, and yellow sunlight. Did you notice how Mog Terman negged our sun? He was like, he called our sun minor sun, like 2942. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, one thing I did want to touch on, I hinted at earlier, was Guype, and, and I did really enjoy this book. I want to I clarify that. I just thought it was ridiculous in several directions, one of which is that Guype loves to just abstract his language so far from what he is actually saying that sometimes it's just downright confusing. So 
this is uh, a passage in with he, which he is describing like uh, department store workers selling, you know, just like Christmas gifts. And um, oh no, I'm on the wrong page here. Hold up a second. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Um, he goes, they're friendly, even jovial and outgoing at the beginning. Now, as the final shopping days approached, they resembled fierce, dedicated soldiers, or, in some cases, zombies programmed to perform a specific task regardless of the obstacles. I like this so far. Here's where it goes nuts. Driven by desperation slash determination to ferret out those last few presents, their eyes focused only on their goal. Like a plane or ship moving through dense fog or dead of night, each was an isolated pulse of life surrounded by a vacuum. The only beacon ahead or to the side was the gift, that special something that would bring a smile of delight to the person who had everything. Convince Herbie the kid who started looking forward to Christmas in February that he need never fear disappointment again, or, best of all, provide the equalizing element so that no one would feel cheated. I read this like seven times. <laughs> He's literally just describing... It's rather poetic. Yes, but, yeah, but like... It's a, gre- it's a Gremlins novel. Slow down, Tolstoy. <laughs> that's, that's the thing, is like, I am not saying it's not beautiful, but I straight up didn't understand what was happening for like the first three times I read it. Because he's... I, I'm looking back at this being like, is he really talking about like department store cashiers just handing gifts over the counter? <laughs> I guess you need to pad it out to 280 pages somehow. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I'd say it's a testament to uh, what a potentially strong writer he was, uh, even though if it's a little silly in this context, uh, <laughs> when we're, you know, it's a book slash movie about little green monsters. Well, it, it, remember, this is the 1980s, so you had to have either a pro or anti-consumerism stance somewhere in your work of art. I thought you were so. going to say, remember, it's the 1980s, so cocaine. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, that I was, was my first say. thought. I see my, the language in this version is much simpler. Uh, but uh, <laughs> when, you, when hearing you read that passage, my very first thought was, oh, he was on coke. Yeah, I mean, if he's putting out two Gremlins adaptations in the same year, that's, that's Stephen <laughs> King levels of coke. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, oh, so that reminds me, uh, since we're talking about Gype the Man uh, and not Gype the Writer, uh, I would love to see a new Nightmare-type sequel to the Gremlins where you find out that there were actual gremlins that Gype was basing this on, and they're the ones that put a bee's like nest in his barbecue. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like it'd be like Irishman levels of like kind of uh, d- kind of defaming an already <laughs> sad death. <laughs> I mean, there has been Gremlins three scripts floating around. I think since the early '90s, and they've just never come to fruition. I think that this, you know, animated prequel is finally going to. Uh, revitalize the franchise in some way uh but yeah i always thought like just keep going down that rabbit hole just get even more strange and meta i would have loved for this to have been like a five film franchise or something just yeah no mate i like the new nightmare idea they kill off guy yeah. they they take down the columbia space shuttle you know yeah, make joe dante a character in one of them yeah why not this is a tangent but you know what always bothered me about new nightmare uh, is that in the movie, they talk about how Freddy Krueger is, like, one form that this monster takes, and somebody says, like, 
Yeah, he's like a finger on a hand. And this is like the, the one finger that pops up in our world. And it's like, I need to see the other fingers. <laughs> At least give us the pinky, yeah. I Or yeah. just, I need like a new Nightmare series where it's like, here's the alternate di- dimension where there's like a Freddy Krueger whale. You know? <laughs> where's the where's the Freddy Krueger of the Mogwai planet? I want to know who's 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 Mogterman's Freddy Krueger. <laughs> I think we're going to have to read a uh, Elm Street sequel novelization at some point. I, I mean, there's so much room for that world to open oh, yeah. up. Uh, Definitely. I'm just excited for this Gremlins New Nightmare funeral sequence where we have Jonathan Banks and Phoebe <laughs> Cates and all these people just hanging out. Polly Holiday. <laughs> In in the uh, in the the new Gremlins new nightmare version, Banks is like showing up to the funeral, even though he wouldn't do Better Call Saul because he was worried he'd die of COVID. <laughs> and he's like, I'll show up to this funeral. <laughs> um, yeah. The, oh, I wanted to touch on also just something funny about the way Gype talks. Is did did anybody catch how he literally called um, Kate an object the first time she was introduced? No. It's the beginning of chapter four. I lost my bookmark, but I'm going to navigate there now. Um, of his affection, at least? or That is the implication, <laughs> but the wording made me laugh. Um, okay, so Billy has gotten into the bank, and he's looking around at stuff, and then it says, only then did he see the object that he usually looked for first when he entered the bank. Next paragraph. Today she was dressed in blue. That's weird. He doesn't say of his affection. <laughs> he literally objectified her. I I think it's bold that Gype was just like, I'm not trying to hide it. <laughs> Would you say that this book was de- definitely written then through the male gape? <laughs> oh, wait, no. Gype, Gype, not yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't know. That's Never a slip. <laughs> <laughs> so my my book is considerably shorter uh, and much. Um, more simpler language. I doubt it added anything uh, that uh, wasn't covered in the, the adult version. So I don't think I have anything else to add specifically about my young adult version. Yeah, Andrew, do you uh, and I have anything uh, a bit broader to uh, wrap it all up with? Well, I, I guess my last point would be, I, I, and I, I feel like I'm just ragging on Gype. I, I just found the book so strange. I, I found it to be such a mix of ideas where like he wanted to add so much interiority to the Mogwai, but also to all the characters. Like we get so much more of their like inner thoughts and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, he's like ramping up the action. So personally, I actually found the ending in the hardware store on the page to be kind of boring because it was like, it was like seven pages of him being like, and then an arrow was shot in this direction. And then yeah. basketballs fell. You know, it's like stuff that's much more exciting to see. And, and, it, and it went on a really long time. Um, speaking of the characters, though, I just I just found their interiority so at odds with their exteriority. Well, yeah, in that they seem to be far more uh, intelligent and crafty than their sort of primitive actions and destruction uh, suggests that they really are plotting these things that, but you know, they're really more, uh, action on the, you know, when, when, uh, they get unleashed. A hundred percent. I, I just don't know. I, I found it really hard to square, um, Gizmo's 
almost like Shakespearean prose with his the way he was like acting and Mm -hmm. just little character moments like when at the end Kate is um, trying to figure out the light situation in the hardware store and she plugs in 26 first as a wild guess and it turns out to be something and she goes what is it she goes uh, oh I'll do chronological sequencing that makes sense and then she starts plugging in 27 28 29 and I was like I just don't know if I believe that this bank teller wouldn't just say I'll just count up (laughs) you know (laughs) I'll do a barrel roll that's a neat trick Mm -hmm. I do think that uh, the book does suffer the most when it is depicting action. Yeah, the the sequence at the end in the in the Montgomery Ward uh, is so much more elaborate than it is in the movie. But if that uh, everything that happened in the book happened in the movie, it would be infinitely be more interesting to watch. It would be awesome, but it is not that interesting to read. Uh, I do, th- and, and you know, this is also why maybe we, most of the action that we get throughout the book is told through these outside perspectives of uh, news articles or or, uh, radio announcers. Uh, And yeah, none of that is as thrilling and compelling as it would be to see. Uh, So, you know, I think that the majority of what is so compelling and and fun to read in this is just the quieter, smaller moments where it's literally, you know, two mogwai staring at each other on Billy's bed, like kind of, you know, squaring off saying you know you know why i'm here gizmo i'm i'm here to Mm -hmm. destroy the world and uh that just adds so many fun layers to things whereas the actual destruction that gremlins create in the world is more interesting to see than to read about a hundred percent i think that's a great note to go out on too which is do we each have like a one thing that's specific to the book or that we think is specific to the book that we really enjoyed um, I know I didn't give anybody a head start on this. I just thought of it right now. <laughs> so well, I guess I'll... Uh, I, no, go ahead, Jack. Uh, no, please, Johnny. Yeah, I, I think I, what I just touched on was the moment the gr- the Mogwai start talking to each other for the first time, uh, which uh, I believe that's uh, chapter 10, start of chapter 10, uh, when they start communicating... All I could think was, oh, this changes everything. Oh, suddenly this is like, suddenly this is very different from the film. And this is adding a layer that isn't even close to being present in that. So that really sucked me in. And it really makes this book worth reading, which I don't think every novelization is. Sometimes you are vastly taking away from what makes a film so special. This does add layers to it that I think is very entertaining. Yeah, um, my my version doesn't really have a. Uh, they don't really talk to each other. There's they, there's some inner inner monologues and and some motivation uh, with Stripe and with Gizmo and maybe a few other gremlins, but no no hard dialogue, no no real Shakespearean concrete thoughts uh, outside of uh, the, at the climax in the department store, which is in the bo- movie I find very boring. Uh, I actually thought was the most tense part of my book, my, you know, which really kind of was just bullet points of the whole movie, uh, because it, it really you, he does set a trap for um, Billy at the end of the hallway and the, the, with the bow and arrow, and there's a good, a good tension with Gizmo saving the day and the lights turning on. Uh, so that that sequence that was actually the out of the you know it took me two hours to read this thing, but uh, that was the <laughs> the most I was I was actually riveted. Um, I guess. 
in terms of what stuck with me, I got to go with the obvious. I, the, just the fact, there's just the prologue of them being this kind of uh, engineered alien xenomorph type species. Uh, it's just, there's, there's so much you could do with that. It was fascinating. Yeah. yeah the more you expand the origin, is the better. A hundred percent. Yeah. I thought that the, that's just exciting. It like makes you want books about gremlins on other planets. It like makes you want like, it makes you want like uh, more context for that. And to Johnny's point, um, I think to Johnny's point, I think that you're right. I think it legitimately like plugged up a hole in the movie because when, when I was watching the movie the other night for the first time in years, I felt like I didn't understand why the gremlins took this leap from being just sort of like crazy animals to doing quite human things like drinking alcohol and like being in the movie theater and everything and, and having them communicate with each other like that. There was some humanity to them to begin with, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Big time. And I think that in the, the first movie, it really is only touched upon that the gremlins aren't that interested in killing all humans or whatever, you know, taking over. They really just want to have fun. And I think that that really only comes across in the bar scene in the movie and, you know, going to the movie theater and singing hi-ho, hi-ho to Snow White. And then (laughs) this is a concept that they take up and run with in the sequel, where it's like they don't care about uh, destroying everyone in New York City. They're fine to live with them if they'll be tolerated. They just want to, you know... Take over, you know, just just run around the city, have fun, go see Broadway shows, get tickets to those. I mean, all of these things are mentioned in the sequel. And it's, yeah, they just want civilization and to have some fun. And uh, there's an anarchy to that that I think is just barely touched upon in the first uh, movie and book and really is fully realized later on. Yeah, 100%. Um, Me personally, for the just thing I liked in the book, that wasn't in the movie and and johnny you kind of touched on this but when we have that chapter where stripe is in his larval stage and he is describing like being inside of the the pupil i'm sorry the pupil stage when he's in the 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 little cocoon um he has a moment that i thought was legitimately cool storytelling where he is afraid that he has been trapped or has been killed like he doesn't know what's going on because he's suddenly in this dark space and he goes, oh, I'm going to kill Gizmo for this. And then yes. he goes, wait, but Mogwai are like almost programmed or like genetically programmed to not kill each other. So the fact that I desire to do that means I am becoming something else. And he gets I'm excited. S- I'm Jesus. so glad you touched on that because I completely forgot. They really go out of their way to explain that Mogwai are programmed that they cannot kill one another. I don't know how that works. I don't know if you have this, like, must kill Gizmo, but can't. Uh, you know, if you have some electrical shock impulse. But yes, that that is what really separates the Mogwai from the Gremlin, is once you are no longer a Mogwai, once you have transitioned, now you can kill. Although they just don't take that opportunity much. Uh, it's, it's very surprising. But I did think that was a really fun, odd wrinkle. Yeah, I love that he just knew, he figured out what was happening because he felt hatred. <laughs> I think overall that this is a really fun companion to the movie. I don't think it works on its own quite as much because, you know, as we've touched on, 
so much of this is visual in the film. Like, and, and it's fun seeing these physical puppets. Uh, reading about these little monsters, uh, less interesting. I, I, I really tried to imagine or, or understand if uh, the descriptors in the book, if I had never seen the movie, if I would be imagining these gremlins quite how you know we know them to appear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's quite there. I think that so much of the fun in the movie is seeing these uh, creatures all pre-CGI, and it just is glorious. Like, the practical <laughs> effects in that movie still hold up. They still look so much fun and full of life. And that's not quite in the book. But what is there is a lot of fun, weird backstory that only adds layers that, like, you know, just change everything if you consider them in the context of the film. Jack, what about you? Uh, yeah, I exactly what Johnny said, uh, but times a thousand for me, especially because <laughs> the uh, the kids' book is so simplified that uh, it really doesn't exist on its own without the movie. Maybe that's why all these kids' books include eight pages of, of scenes from the sh- actual. Uh, Those stills are in from the here. Movie. Oh, they're in there as well. Yeah, and okay. and I was shocked at how they like spoiled the end of the book. They they're they in the totally middle. spoil. Well, mine I mine. Mine, let me see. The, they showed up so early because the book is 70 pages. Uh, yeah, they show when they sh- the, when the pictures show up. Uh, yeah, there there aren't there aren't even any Mogwai yet. Uh, I don't think Gizmo even. Oh uh, yeah, there was five new Mogwai, but the, they hadn't uh, transformed yet. And then the pictures just show you know these monsters killing everybody. So I uh, think more that- often than not, like a staple of these novelizations is those like eight glossy pictures in the yeah of course book, yes de- depicting the movie because yeah it's i guess it's basically trying to sell you on the movie or or they know you already love it so you're it's just giving yeah. you a little taste of that i, don't know. I mean it's, it's, it's yeah especially these kids ones I, i'm i'm guessing it's just it, there it's a it's a action figure in paper form it's just they just want to sell something to kids i don't think this is trying to enlighten children on the backstory uh, I think that the adult novelizations, I, I think, do have uh, some extra objectives. But this, it's literally just like reading a Wikipedia article after you watch the movie and you go, and it fills in a few blanks. And you're like, oh, that's okay. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't exist. Uh, I wouldn't read this without watching the movie, but uh, I'm glad I did read it. And it does, it will probably make my next viewing uh, that much more enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically in the same boat. I, I feel like... Uh the novel would just be so odd if I read it on its own. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I think the novel does stand alone. I think Guy bends over so far backwards, he's standing upright again to explain this universe. (laughs) And so I think you could legitimately hand it to a reader and be like, this is a crazy book, check it out. But um, do I think it would be like a good book uh, to just read having not seen the movie? Uh, Maybe not. Um, but I was definitely appreciative to uh, to get this extra perspective, and I would recommend this to someone who really loved the movie, I think is the best way to classify it. It's not a book I would recommend to a reader in general, but if someone was like, I love Gremlins, I'd be like, you might get some juice out of yeah. this book. Yeah, the type of person that watches the deleted scenes on the DVD. Yes, yes, 100%. Yeah. Also, uh, Jack, I just wanted to say... You keep calling it a kid's edition, but a young reader could theoretically be any age. Yes, of course. Of course. If it's your second book, you are a young reader. There you go. That's a good point. And uh, I do, if you are a young reader, uh, I do recommend a novelization for young readers. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. 
Uh, I can't believe Guy broke both. That's crazy. I love that. So that's, that's a that's a free ad that we just did pro bono. <laughs> our first ad. <laughs> Maybe we should let that take us out. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll donate all money to the George Guype uh, B Memorial <laughs> Charity. Fountain. Okay.